We're still in this series on the other half of the church, basically asking what's a healthy church look like. And a bunch of things that a couple of authors have laid out that talk a bit about how the brain operates and how we experience joy or love or correction or narcissism. My experience with uh, finding that I hit a nerve if I bring any kind of word of correction, which is really hard for me in the first place, I just really don't like bringing a, you know, in fact, my team that I work with and supervise, they're like, I think you just brought a critique, but it felt like a compliment. Like they, I'm, I've got such a soft touch. Like they don't even know I'm bringing a word of correction. Um, but my experience is I do experience people who are very defensive. They react to any hint of uh, correction. And it feels like there are two kinds of folk who have a very hard time receiving correction. Uh, those who are narcissistic and those who are insecure. Like either they've got an inflated ego or they've got a deflated ego. And probably Shauna's a better person, Shauna Ezel, to talk a little bit about, well, actually, uh, they're the same, or, you know, there's a connection here, or here's where the injury or upbringing or incident occurs that creates that inflated or deflated ego. But I feel like there's uh, those who have an unhealthy high view of themselves and those who have an unhealthy low view of themselves, and both of them are really averse to criticism, um, possibly for a variety of reasons. A few weeks ago, I was at a conference called A Gathering in the Holy Spirit, and it was in uh, Rome, and it was Catholics and Protestants who are charismatic. That is, those who believe in the full operation of the gifts and who operate in the full operation of the gifts. In fact, the, you know, we gather, there's 50 of us, we gather in this room, and the MC German guy, Olaf, is like, okay, hey, everyone, welcome. This has been a conference that's been delayed because of the pandemic, but it's been going on since like 2003. And I was invited to the prior one, like, I don't know, 2017. I thought, like, I don't think so. It's far to go. I'm not sure how much of student ministry is part of it. But I kept being asked by a friend of Dave Dave's called Richard Roberts, who's been very much part of this for the last 10 years or so, maybe 15. And uh, finally, I said, you know, it fits with my sabbatical. And I was taking a sabbatical to look at Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, kind of the unity within the body of Christ. So it kind of fit with that. I said, okay, I'll do it. April uh, of 2020, was April 1st, 2020, the first day of my sabbatical, traveling all over and lots of in-person face. Yeah, my sabbatical collapsed, as did this conference. So this was the delayed version just a month ago, uh, end of May. And so Olaf is like, okay, hey, everyone, welcome. You know, it's been delayed. Um, everyone stand up. We're just going to speak in tongues. Like, that's how it starts. Just no, very little introduction. 
And it's like, there's the, you know, Franciscan brothers and stuff. Now, I couldn't tell if the, you know, Polish and Czech folk were really speaking in tongues. They were cheating and using their own language because I couldn't <laughs> tell. But like, man, the room erupted. It's like, okay, here's the spirit of this room. Yes, glory to God, Catholics and Protestants together in a room praising God in tongues. And there was a kind of posture in the room that I would describe as meek, as humble. There is no posturing. You know, you get to a conference with strangers and sometimes there can be that, do you know I need to kind of prove myself a little bit and establish myself and whether through insecurity or narcissism, it's like people are posturing and you know, you're sitting around talking and oh, here's what I've done and here's who I am. There wasn't any of that. Felt like everyone was like, I know my people have done your people wrong, both Catholics and Protestants, like, and I'm just so sorry about that and I've got more to learn than I have to teach and I want to be about listening and not speaking that's the spirit like everybody in the room that sets a really cool atmosphere if you know Enneagram I'm a nine which is kind of the peacemaker harmony like I love that was like a that was like a rich soil of just everyone being very very thoughtful and thinking about how they hold the exclusionary sins of their community against the community that you're in the room with. And you have that sense of, oh man, I am so sorry and I've got stuff to learn. And um, I come from a people of un unclean lips sort of spirit. So... I, I don't know that I've been in many uh, conferences with a bunch of strangers who have that default. Just like that's where you start, is you've got more to learn than to teach, and you've got stuff you need to listen to rather than um, talk about. Man, would that we could all live in that space of intense meekness and humility. Um, so rather than talk about narcissism, which I do think is important to learn about, and I, I don't really feel qualified so much to, not that I'm not narcissistic at times, but like identifying where that comes from and how to deal with. What I felt like for this particular sermon in the series, I'd like to encourage meekness rather than explore narcissism, though I think both are needed. Because the, the insecure or the narcissist, if they're different people, um, are in this desperate attempt to protect their own self-importance. And the meek have made peace with their own fallibility and frailty and humanity. And there's a power in that, in that coming to terms with your own stuff um, and recognizing your humanity. 
when that happens, like all heaven breaks loose. <laughs> um, there's nothing to prove. You don't have anything to prove anymore. And so you're free to put the other first because you're not trying to prove anything, and that's what I experienced at that conference. Um, the meek have a sense of what the greater good looks like. And um, they're willing to set aside any individual wins over the, the group win. That's the meek. And maybe those of you who are familiar with sports can see, oh yeah, a true sports person looks for the, in a, in a team sport, looks for the group win even if it means them stepping back or like, so that kind of spirit is what I'm talking about. I think to illustrate or teach on meekness, it's better just to give a few profiles in meekness. When I think about meekness in scripture, when I think about people who are meek, I think about Mary. Maybe because I came out of this Catholic Protestant gathering that I'm just thinking about Mary these days, but like, <laughs> when I talk about opportunity for narcissism, you know, if bearing uh, the God of the universe does not give you a big head, I don't know what will. Like, so, yeah, like big head, big belly full of God. Like, um, here's how I imagine the annunciation happening 16 year old girl out in her parents plot August hot and she is picking uh, peas or beans like she's gathering them in her basket she's out alone and she is just daydreaming because her fiance and her dad just set the date. Like her fiance just finished construction of the addition onto his parents' place. And like, okay, I got the spot ready. Let's set a date. Like, oh, just a month or so off. And like, she is so excited, kind of absently picking the peas as she's imagining, oh my gosh, Joseph is such a good character, such a good man, like that I could marry this guy. He's so upright and so thoughtful, maybe a bit older and, you know, he isn't anyone super big or important, works with his hands, he's a carpenter, but man, is he a good guy. I'm just so excited. I'm trying to imagine what it's like like living together with this guy. He's got our house ready. Oh yeah, we're gonna have babies. We'll celebrate Father's Day together. Oh no, Hallmark hasn't been invented yet. <laughs> so she's just besotted with the upcoming event. And she's picking beans and all of a sudden it's like this, like did the sun just come out from behind a cloud or what? Because the garden is just lit up and she looks up, and there's this massive, glowing man. Startled, obviously, at first, and then maybe just a little put out. But 
I don't get the impression from the description in Scripture that she's hysterical or freaking out. Maybe she's had angelic encounters. I mean, angel, the word Hebrew and the English slash Latin word messenger, they're, they're just mail carriers, really, most of them. Like, we're just delivering the mail here. That's what the, that's what the word means, mailman. <laughs> messenger is what the sort of Hebrew and, and the Latin angelos means mailman or message bearer. And there he is, just towering. And his greeting, the way he introduces this sort of welcome, is he says, um, greetings, you are so, so favored. And scripture tells us, that more than the stature and glowingness or whatever amazingness of being in the presence of the angel Gabriel would be like, the, the thing that stuck out to her is like, she wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Like, greeting you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. That stuck out. What? What in the, like, I don't get this highly favored. What kind of greeting is this? I'm not from a high priestly family. I'm a nobody from nowheresville. On the border with the Gentiles up here, like, kind of a mixed community. Me, not Herod's household. Not the high priest's household. Highly favored? That strikes me as a character quality right there. She wondered what kind of greeting this might be. This isn't Jerusalem. And then he delivers this amazing, distressing news. Really soon you're going to be pregnant with uh, the Savior. And, you know, as much as that greeting was confounding and confusing, highly favored, what? And now you're going to be pregnant. I'm not sure that that was as disturbing as highly favored. I think she's still pondering, what in the world would the, God's mailman be doing in my dad's garden talking to me at 16? Like, okay. You're going to bear uh, the Savior. And her response is, I'm the Lord's servant. Like, what can I say? I'm the Lord's servant. Let it happen, just like you said. Just like you said. Mary, do you know what you're really getting into here? And throughout the stories, we get glimpses of Mary. I don't catch the threads of narcissism. Like, there are a number of incidents in this pregnancy and delivery and first few years of Jesus' life. Bizarre. I can imagine, you know, she rushes in after this to tell her dad. And maybe he rushes out to look 
you know, I don't know, maybe there's a crop circle or something like that, but like he's, <laughs> I, I kind of imagine he pats her head. That's, that's nice, dear. Uh, until she misses her period, right? <laughs> and then it's, you know, all of the, oh, how cute. She thinks she saw an angel, and oh, maybe she did. Who knows? And like, you got to tell Joseph. And Joseph is like, okay, all the cuteness has left about this story. And um, he decides to break the contract. <laughs> like, I know we set the date. Uh, dad, oh my gosh, her dad and her mom. You know, I was in a garbage collector's community in Cairo, Egypt at a wedding. Oh my goodness. It was a to-do. Like, here's a poor person, and the whole town has come out. Like, this dad probably mortgaged his home. I'm, as soon as Mary's born, he starts saving for this day. 16 years, he's built up a little nest egg. He's got the caterers lined up, and now he's got to go around town and say, uh, the wedding's off. And it doesn't take long for the, yeah, Mary's pregnant. Mary? Really? Not Mary. Yeah, Mary's pregnant. Sure enough, she starts showing. It's like, oh my gosh. Wasn't Joseph. How does a narcissist or insecure person handle that? I think Mary's got some resolve here. Like, did she go down that path of self-loathing? I don't think so. Did she go down that path of self-aggrandizement? Like, okay, I'm carrying God in my womb. And like Elizabeth confirms some stuff. And then her fiancé has a visitation. It's like, okay, these are big things. And still, she carries these uh, insults and these amazing incidents. The scripture says she, she treasured them and pondered them. When great things happen to meek people, I think they learn how to treasure them and ponder them. It doesn't get into the bloodstream of the ego. You just hold them shepherds and kings and all this stuff. And I don't think it inflated her ego. I think she just held them. How curious. I'm going to ponder this and just, you know, quizzical wonderment rather than I must be all that able to withstand the misunderstanding and the critique and able to withstand angels and kings and shepherds saying, you're amazing because something's happening in your body that's unprecedented. The meek are, are constantly thinking about the greater good. Mary's holding that. Something really good's happening. Not primarily to me but to the planet <laughs> and to my people especially, defeated 
and oppressed. And even in this little town of Nazareth, God sees. I imagine she's thinking about Hagar, like angelic visit to this woman that basically communicates God sees you. You on the edge, marginalized, outcast. God sees you. When that happens, man, that is incredible. Meek people are able to um, move in meekness when they have those experiences of being seen by God. I think about Esther, too. Goodness me. Talk about someone who could potentially go on a power trip. So Esther's this Israelite girl, maybe like Mary. Teenager, late teens, early 20s. And like the survey goes out, okay, who's got the character and the looks to be in the harem of this, you know, foreign king and you, you've got it. And so Esther goes through these beauty treatments and ends up being chosen by the pagan Gentile king to be number one. Does it go to her head? Not that I can see in Scripture. So there's a threat all of a sudden. Nobody knows that, except the people who chose her, probably, that this is a Hebrew girl. And so this death threat goes out for all Hebrews. And her uncle says, I think you're in this position for such a time as this. He's like, I can't go to the king and just say, hey, don't kill the Jews. Like, I... I will likely lose my life in that exchange. Yeah, well, uh, either you lose it at the hand of the king for asking or you lose it, you know, a month later when we're all killed. Like, so, well, she could keep the secret up. He's no, she's number one. So, but like, if I perish, I perish. That's the sort of famous line from Esther. I feel like that's Mary's line, right? I am the Lord's servant. Let it happen, however. And so you get these women of incredible meekness as profiles in meekness for us to imitate. In a position of power, able to save herself, sees the greater good, and puts her life on the line to say, it's not about me. That's the mantra of the meek. It's not about me. I'm over myself. And so, you know, she's able to set aside that self-protection in order to use her position for the greater good, potentially at the expense of her life. doesn't happen. She manages to keep her life and save the Jewish nation. And then kind of the third profile in meekness and humility. I think of Ruth. What an interesting person. Yeah, now she's the foreigner. 
and she marries this Hebrew guy, and he dies, and she chooses to attach herself to her mother-in-law. I love my mother-in-law, but just think about that. <laughs> You're choosing, you know, go back to your family. Try again. People know that, you know, this is, hey, this is a thousand, you know, or this is 800 BC, whatever. People die. People get widowed. Then they marry again in their family with their people. I choose you, Naomi, and I choose your people. And so she becomes a beggar. She chooses to become a beggar. I think Ruth is so over herself. Like, she sees Naomi and knows she needs someone. She's, she can't go back. She's been away too long, and I'm coming with you. And so she goes begging, you know, picking the leftover stuff. She gets noticed by a really important guy, and he marries her. And all along, you get the feeling that Ruth is over herself. And she's able to beg, or she's able to be kind of the town queen. <laughs> and, like, it's still not about her. What a beautiful profile in meekness for Mary and Esther and Ruth. Each of these women embraced power with meekness. Um, the meek are going to inherit the earth. Let me just tell you that. They're going to be the kings and queens. They're going to rule. And you know why? Because they know how to use power, not for themselves. They can handle power without it being bent toward them or used toward them or as something to prop themselves up. The meek know how to use power. You want to be a powerful person? Learn to step into meekness. Like, they can handle power because they know how to use it for the greater good, even if it, even if it disadvantages themselves. It's like, no, this is the right thing to do, and this is the right way to use this power. They're going to inherit the earth. They're going to be the ones at the end who are at those top posts. Ruth and Esther and Mary... And others, I, I thought about contrasting Saul and David over these months. I've been thinking about this. Saul as the picture of narcissism and David as humility. I'm not sure David was always humble. I'm not sure that Saul was always narcissistic. In fact, the story of uh, Saul starts when Samuel gets a word, okay, the People haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. You're going to give them a king. It's going to be this guy. And scripture says Saul was tall and handsome. But he was also, he had a little bit of an insecurity thing going. 
because Samuel's like, God's chosen you as king. And he's like, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, the smallest, and from the least of the families of Benjamin. I think you've got it wrong. And when Samuel goes, you know, calls together the leaders or whatever, he's going to anoint Saul. Saul is hiding. <laughs> he's like, no way. He's tall, head above everyone else, handsome and insecure. But I, I feel like Saul's insecurity turns into narcissism pretty quickly. So all of a sudden, everybody is calling him king, and it, like, it feels so good. This deflated ego suddenly gets some air in it and starts growing. One of the first battles, like the, okay, here's how the modus operandi works. When we go into battle, you stop and acknowledge it's not us, it's God. And so you do a sacrifice just because you need to get your eyes off yourself. It's not by might nor by power, but by God's spirit. So in order to do that, you've got to do the sacrifice just to set everyone's mind straight. Remember, not by the strength of our bows, it's by God that we're going to win this battle. And so Saul is waiting for Samuel to come and perform the sacrifice, and he's looking at his Rolex or his Fitbit and like, where is this guy? And the people are urging him, hey, come on, let's, let's just go. Like, no, we've got to wait for Samuel. And Scripture says people start leaving. Soldiers start leaving. He's like, all right. Because this is about me and getting things done, we're not going to wait for Samuel. I'm going to perform this for us. Because it's all on me. I'm the king, after all. And we're going to lose our army. Like, he's missing the very point of, like, this, you know, process of we stop and we acknowledge it's about God. And so he performs the sacrifice. First clue that, okay, the air is going into the ego. And uh, all of a sudden, he's not the guy hiding among the baggage, but like, okay, everyone, I'm going to do this. I can take care of this. You know, there's another incident where they're battling the Amalekites, and like the instructions are, don't take anything. Like, do it all. And uh, Saul spares the king, Agag, and plunder. And then he throws a party, and Scripture says he sets up a monument to himself. And Samuel walks in to the party. <laughs> He's like, uh, what's going on here? I saved the best for God. <laughs> right? That's his, like, I know you said destroy it all, whatever. Look, look what I did for God. I don't know if he's self-deceived. Like, does he really believe that? Does he really, is he really that out of touch with his motivation that he thinks he did this for God? When really, it's like, hey, you, you get to take these and you, you know, 
remember who your daddy is. Like, I got you here. You take this. So he's, you know, parceling out the, the stuff. Really? You think it's for God? Already you've been, you know, giving the plunder away to these guys. Come on, Saul. It's about you. And looking good. You need to look good, whether it's because you're super insecure or you're a narcissist. It's the, the first priority is how you look to others. Think about Mary, how you look to others. Like, not that it didn't hurt, not that it didn't matter, but the greater good was caring Christ. Like, God, I'll do this. I will raise the Messiah. But, like, can you wait a month until we're married so people think that, you know, here's a different way to do it so that I don't have to look bad? No, I'm God's servant. So David comes on the scene. And Saul is threatened. Like the insecure and the narcissist are threatened by people who look really good, look better than them. It's a threat. Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Like, wait a second. That feels like a slap in my face. This can't be. We got to deal with this. And David, for his part, perhaps during his meek season, is like, Saul is God's anointed. Like, I'm not going to touch this guy. David, the people are with you. The, you get the army in uh, you know, these situations, and you get to be king. <laughs> you get the army saying yes to you, and you get to write the constitution and david's like no god chose saul even when god's favor had been removed from saul david was like this is the lord's anointed i'm not going to mess with this the greater good is that we keep saul preserve his kingship he's not died of natural causes or in battle like he's God's kept this guy alive. I'm not going to be the one to take his life. And, you know, in a... I don't know if ancient Israeli culture was machismo. But to be the leader of the army and to be just a really good ballet dancer, like the computing of the kind of, I gotta look strong, and here's David, like... I'm taking off these robes. They're too confining for my leaps and my pirouettes. Like, this guy is dancing in front of everybody without any self-consciousness. And his wife's like, that was really humiliating. He's like, I'll become even more undignified. I don't care. I love to dance. <laughs> I'm a singer. I'm a dancer. And I'm a warrior. Get over it. <laughs> really interesting. You know, he writes these psalms of like, I drench my couch with my tears. Lord, have mercy. Here's this weeping, dancing, singing warrior. 
He doesn't care. Real men cry and apparently dance and sing and play music and like that's David. Man after God's own heart because he didn't touch the Lord's anointed even though the Lord's anointed was a screw-up. And God had regretted that he made Saul king. And still David wouldn't touch him. And David doesn't care how he looks, dignified or not. He's just going to dance with all his might before God. <laughs> he doesn't care how it looks to be this singer-songwriter talking about how he weeps and weeps, calling out for God's mercy. Now, we know David had his incidents, shall we say, with self-absorption and self-importance later in his life. I think his son Samuel, too, probably started out with great humility. Like, God's like, I'm really, really pleased with you. What do you want? I just want to be wise. I just want to be super, super thoughtful. That's a good request. Like, you're not asking for yourself to be rich and powerful and having all this stuff. You just want to be wise. I can honor that. And, yeah, power corrupts. That's true. You know, you can start out meek, but then how do you handle stuff when you do start to inherit bits of the earth? And for David, maybe... Maybe Saul started out meek. I don't know. His sort of, no, not me, and I'm hiding, and I don't want this more insecure maybe than meekness. But David and Solomon, I think it got to them really, really hard to carry uh, places of importance without becoming self-possessed, self-important, and then you get this out-of-shape ego. I think I've told you guys once, or twice, probably several times. Tom, Tom could tell. He says, oh, you've told, you told that story in uh, February of uh, <laughs> 1999. <laughs> he keeps a record. But like, I sat next to, on a flight, the guy who was part of a band called The Turtles, who, you know, wrote... Um, so happy together, you know, 60s thing. And um, recognize at the end of the flight that we had spent two hours talking just about him. Because he starts off with like, yeah, um, and once I find out he was, you know, part of the turtles, and I wasn't, a, you know, I was a baby or a kid. I didn't know the turtles. I knew the songs because... They're, you know, Hardee's or whatever. The commercials buy so happy to get, you know. So I knew those songs. But, like, I wasn't a Turtles fan or anything like that. But once I found out he was a turtle, um, it be, he, he said, you know, when you're on Dick Clark's uh, Tour of the Stars on a bus with the Beatles and you're 18 years old, it messes with your ego. Oh, here's a humble guy talking about we spent the next two hours talking about him. <laughs> oh, it really does mess with your ego. So handling 
power. You know, give me Mary and Esther and Ruth. These ladies had forms of power that probably fairly few ladies had in those days. And my personal modern, you know, modern as in 1200s, uh, <laughs> profile in meekness is Francis, St. Francis of Assisi. You know, he starts out pretty puffed up. As a youth, like, he was a party guy. His dad was rich. He gave his dad's, he was a cloth merchant, so he gave his dad's fine, fine outfits to his friends and, you know, was the life of the party. He has these encounters, you know, he gets sick and depressed, um, but he's, his quest is for glory from youth. And he told, you know, he's, he starts out on the fourth crusade, with a knight. He, this is what's going to break him out of his funk that he's been in since he spent a period of sickness and other things like his, the party animal had leached out of him. I'm going to be a great knight, he told his family and friends as he was getting on the horse to follow this knight out on the fourth crusade. He gets sick a day into the journey. He's carrying the malarial virus uh, from earlier, and he's in a malarial fever, and he gets sent back. Well, he starts the Franciscans, kind of. I don't think he intended to. I mean, goodness, he's 26 years old. He's just wanting to follow Jesus, and he's like, what if Jesus meant that stuff about, you know, giving your wealth away and um, loving your enemy? Like, what if that was something we ought to really do? And people start following him. But he's got these pictures of uh, nightly glory that's, that he's translated into the Christian experience. And so he's still got a little bit of this quest for glory. Fifth Crusade comes around, and he's like, I'm going to go, and I'm going to convert uh, the sultan. And if I don't, I'll get martyred. Either way, I win. <laughs> so he goes to Damietta, Egypt, where the, the fortress of Damietta uh, has been under siege for a year. And he walks in with Brother Illuminatus, who knows some Arabic, and 100,000 Christians camped out and his stomach turns at the stench of rotting bodies, at the diseases that are besieging the camp. They're not used to the Egyptian climate or the Egyptian bugs or water. And the debauchery and the butchery of fellow Christians like really, really disturbs him. And there are, you know, Ladies going from tent to tent, too. Like, okay, what? I don't know that he's been in such a large group before, and Christians from all over Europe. But this is really disorienting for him. And a week into his time in Damietta, 
two Muslim spies are caught in their company. And the Christians cut their lips off and cut their noses off and gouge an eye out and send them back just to utterly humiliate them. You know, they could have killed them, but decided to maim them instead and send them back. The, the Christian camp, <laughs> you know, fighting for Jerusalem. Here they are, just butchers. And Al-Kamil, Al-Malik Al-Kamil is a sultan. And uh, they rain down some terror with regard to, you know, hot tar and stuff into the camp like they retaliate. But uh, Al-Kamil, the sultan, is actually a holy man, kind of. You know, he's uh, very devout. And the siege has gone on for a year. People are suffering on both sides. They're still pretty well supplied, but he's like, tell you what, let's end this. We will give you the city of Jerusalem, and we will give you money to rebuild it, and we'll give you the relics of the true cross. Let's just call it over. And the cardinal, who is the leader of the Fifth Crusade troops in Damietta, Pelagio, Cardinal Pelagio. He's like, no, I want your utter destruction, and uh, I refuse. So here, you know, Jerusalem, that's the quest of the Crusades. He's like, no way, utter annihilation. That's unilateral, unilateral victory. Talk about narcissism. He's like refusing the goal because it's not enough. Francis is like, send me in to the fortress. Brother Illuminatus knows some Arabic. I want to convert the sultan. More, he says, more by my uh, works or my, by my actions than by my words. And Pelagio is like, you know that's a suicide mission. I don't care. You know, Francis is like, either convert the sultan or die trying. Either way, I win. Whatever. Like, but your blood's on your own heads. Fully convinced that uh, Pelagio's going to watch the heads of Illuminatus and Francis catapulted back into their camp by evening. Uh, Francis and Illuminatus go into the fortress in Damiata, Egypt. To the Sultan. And interestingly, the uh, Muslim records kept about this time talk of Francis from Assisi and Illuminatus coming and spending a week with the Sultan in the fortress. So both Christian and Muslim records acknowledge this really happened. <laughs> he goes in for a week. Now his first encounter with the Sultan is like Put your arms down, become Christians. And the Sultan Al Malik's advisors are like, okay, heads off these guys, pitch them into their and Illuminatus and Francis are about the same age. And they're both holy men, really. He's like tells Francis privately, I would never do that to you. I've been asked to take your heads off, but I see you're sincere. You sincerely want me to convert to what you understand to be true. I don't believe it's true. 
about Jesus or whatever, but like, your heart's good. And uh, Amalek says, tell you what, I'm going to give you passage to Jerusalem and supplies. And um, I feel this sort of connection with you, Francis. Uh, the, the offer comes back to Pelagio. It's like, not only will I give you the city of Jerusalem, not only will I give you the true relics of the cross, I will give you 30 Muslim noblemen, and you hold them hostage until we finish rebuilding Jerusalem, which has kind of been destroyed over these crusades. We will fund and rebuild and to your satisfaction, and you hold these 30 Muslim noblemen and release them when you're satisfied that we've given you Jerusalem in good shape. Elijah's like, no way. I want it all. Something happens in Francis, like this, <coughs> this uh, martyrdom quest. He didn't accomplish anything <coughs> that he set out to. Sultan wasn't converted and he didn't die trying. And he saw the debauchery of the Christian troops. And he under, undergoes a kind of conversion to this sense of, I think, you know, he had sent Franciscan friars into treacherous Muslim territory who had been martyred, but they were on this martyr's quest too. Like they kind of contributed by their belligerence. And Francis is like, we live the gospel with grace and truth, and we speak with gentleness and reverence, and we leave the outcome to God. He's got this sort of humility that happens after this encounter. And this, this person who's got this thing in his britches about, I, I burn out uh, rather than fade away. <laughs> it's gone. And this man of peace emerges very humbled by what he's seen and experienced and creating a posture of we live the gospel faithfully, we speak it with respect and gentleness and reverence. And if nothing happens, nothing happens. That meekness like understanding our place. It's very easy to think this generation, this church or this parachurch group or like this is the most amazing thing. You occupy such a small fragment of human history. Just a blip. I mean, you are just a blip in human history. And you walk around just such a tiny portion of this amazing planet, which is just a tiny speck in this incredible infinite cosmos. We're so small. Can you get over it? <laughs> Can you be okay? You're just so small. You're here for just such a short time. And in such a tiny place in the cosmos. 
I suppose I'd be remiss in profiles in meekness and not mentioning this guy, Jesus Christ, you know. Talk about meekness. So his inauguration into ministry was the devil rightly says um, food, fame, invincibility. You deserve it, and you can get it. And Jesus, in his hunger, and in his frailty, and in his relative invisibility at this time, says no to food, and to fame, and to invincibility. Those were the temptations. Those invitations that, like, there's nothing wrong with them in certain respects. Certainly, you know, bow down and worship me. That's not a good idea, uh, you know. But, like, all this could be yours. And throw yourself down, and you can protect yourself. God says, I'm going to protect you. And um, you're hungry, so, like, you've got this power to make really great bread. Go for it. I'm not. I'm not going to do that. I'm over myself as God. You know? Even as God, it's not about me. And so we see in Christ this incredible meekness. Um, so I've written some books. And those are invitations to ego and narcissism. I mean, that wasn't the topic. An invitation to ego and narcissism. <laughs> I'm saying, when you put something out there that's published, like not self-published, but like really published. And like, I didn't have to promise that. It was a total accident that I got published in 2006 because I had approached publisher with, hey, I'm seeing these people move into slum communities. There's something about this that's like worth telling this story. Uh, no. My boss, who ran a conference of, you know, 10 or 15,000 people called Urbana, said, I'll make that a book of the day. All of a sudden, the publisher's interested. <laughs> and like, so it was totally not me. New Friars, I write this. And, you know, I'm pretty young-ish still back then. <laughs> Certainly by my standards. I was really young. And so I'm looking online. The web did exist in 2006, and I'm searching it. And the first review on Amazon comes up. It's like, oh my gosh, a complete stranger who I don't know has read and written something about this. One star. Wait. Is this like, you know, DEFCON 1 is better than DEFCON 4? <laughs> like, what's one star? Uh, Works-based dismally boring was my first review on Amazon. <laughs> okay. That was so helpful. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you're really not all that, Bassenacker. <laughs> And so um, wrote a few others and edited a, a few. <laughs> They're all taking up space now in the warehouse. And, and I repeat, can you get these out of here? <laughs> like, we'll give them to you. 
just you know come and get them because they're out of print now and we don't want them. So, uh, but one of them was I wanted to call it leadership schmeadership because I wanted to sort of uh, I was seeing this infatuation with leadership, particularly among Christians, <laughs> like all these leadership stuff. Let me look to see what Jesus has to say about leadership. Jesus has virtually nothing to say about leadership, mostly about following. And so, you know, the title didn't get, you know, leadership. It was How to Inherit the Earth. And it ended up being a book celebrating meekness more than deriding our unhealthy leadership. But those have been schools in, like, oh, people know you who you don't know, that's not that big a deal. And feeling that invitation to narcissism and sometimes going down that trail humbly. You know, I don't, the, the How to Inherit the Earth never really did very good, but how do you promote a book you've written on humility? You know, it's just really <laughs> hard to be like, this is a really amazing book, you need to get it. It's all about humility. And I wrote it. <laughs> but um, Emily, said it's really good. Emily likes it. That says something. But sort of bumping into your inflated self and realizing it's not all that. And this sort of back and forth with, um, you know, you don't want to go self-loathing or self-inflating. Like, how do you walk that sense of being beloved, but being a speck in human history? The people I've mentioned who I believe are meek is um, results from a conviction about their belovedness. I don't think we're meek, or we're not meek because we don't believe how beloved we are. If we knew, we wouldn't care what other people thought. If we really knew. I mean, you know up here, right, God loves you. You say it. You even tell others that. You don't believe that. Well, some of you do. Bless you. I have a hard time. Like, you know, you believe it when you start acting on that. Most of us acting out of insecurity or narcissism are saying, I don't believe you that I'm beloved. Because if I really believed it, I wouldn't be struggling with insecurity or trying to, you know, inviting this puffing up my ego thing or enjoying this puffing up my ego thing. Like, that wouldn't matter to me. When you choose to believe uh, these truths down and, and they drown out the lies, I think you'll be able to embrace meekness. So let me leave you with these truths and ask yourself what it would mean to really believe it and not fight kicking and screaming like the child in <laughs> the back room who's like, I don't want this. <laughs> You believe this. I, this is God speaking. I knit you together in your mother's womb. 
Really? Do you really believe that? I saw you when you were embryotic and was part of putting you together. That intimacy, like can you really believe, oh, that's just metaphor? I don't think so. I believe in this very intimate exchange, God, before you even knew you were a thing. God saw you and was active in your creation as a human being. Zephaniah 3, I am with you, the mighty warrior who saves. I'll take great delight in you. In my love, I will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Imagine what that looks like for the God of the universe, like David, just to be undignified in singing and dancing over you. I don't know. I think if we really believed that, we could walk the meek road. We could handle power. And, you know, people who don't like us or people thinking poorly of us, those things wouldn't matter. You're rooted in this sense. God is singing over me. I really, really believe that. But I don't. Like when my actions bear out my insecurities or whatever, I'm saying, I don't believe that, God. Believe it. You want to be meek, believe that God sings over you, delights over you, knits you together. I heal the brokenhearted. I bind up your wounds. I see your pain. And I get to kiss the wound, to bind the wound, to anoint the wound. Like I'm that kind of God. I see you. I bind up your wounds. When you pass through the waters, when you're in a really bad way, I'll be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overflow. When you walk through the fire, you'll not be burned. For I'm the Lord your God. I've come, Jesus says to you, so that you can have really, really abundant life. Do you believe it? Lord, um, my actions betray that I don't always believe those things. I'm sorry about that. Oh, I say it in my head and I say it to others. But the proof is in the pudding. My actions don't always reveal that I believe that you knit me together, that you see me, that you heal the brokenhearted, that you're with me, that you've come, that I can have life abundantly. Otherwise, other people's comments wouldn't matter to me. And being given all sorts of kudos wouldn't go to my head. Teach me to root myself in my belovedness in your eyes. We ask that in Jesus' name.